Hi, John. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you, Raza. Brilliant. It's it's great to have you here. Any ads, as I was mentioning when I was talking to you before, I mean, anything to do with film industry and any kind of research regarding the topic, especially which you are um, researching on, which you will introduce, I am honored to talk to anyone who's being part of this industry. So how would you like to introduce your research? Um, well, I'm published as Jonathan Root, but most of my colleagues and my friends just call me John. Um, I'm mainly known for researching into Japanese film and uh, how they're distributed, marketed and consumed in the UK. Uh, I've always been interested in that. Uh, I've written in a variety of Japanese films as both a student and a researcher now. Um, that interest has taken me into how Japanese films are distributed and marketed, as I say. Um, that's been the basis of a lot of my research but through that I've become interested in, in home media research which relates to two books that I was published in last year uh, cult media and DVD blu-ray and beyond um, that's filtered into some other journal articles uh, again using Japanese films as case studies to further look at distributing marketing in the UK and how a distributor I've been following for a while third window films has actually moved into producing films in Japan uh, as well. That's a free-to-read article online. I think that's Bright Lights Film Journal. People can go and look at. Most recently, um, interest in Japanese cinema, I mean, it overlaps with, uh, there are so many genres in it, and it overlaps with so many other film categories. Again, because of that research, I was asked for, uh, around this time last year, uh, if not earlier than that, to co help co-edit a book, which I'm working on at the moment, called New Blood on New Trends in Horror Films. Okay. So I'm, I'm looking at a specific, uh, very tongue-in-cheek, low-budget mm. Japanese film for my case study chapter in that book. Uh, that'll be fun. Uh, it's fun through the title alone, uh, Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in Hell. <laughs> you can just... And that is a horror film? That is a horror film, very tongue-in-cheek, low-budget wow. horror film, marketed very interestingly um, in the UK. I could go more into that, but that might be the whole podcast, <laughs> a dangerous tangent to go on any of these case studies. Most recently though, um, this just happened yesterday. I got the news that there's a, there's a book proposal I want to write cause I haven't written a monograph yet. And there's a, a history of a particular film franchise I'm very interested in called Zatoichi, the blind swordsman. Oh, wow. Um, the, the franchise stretches across five decades of like Japanese film history. Um, the current research on in samurai uh, in, within samurai film research, um, the current literature on the Zatoichi film franchise is very small, not not a lot of pages dedicated to it. And I thought, well, actually, going from what I've known and what I've looked into in the history of the franchise, I think there's a whole book length project here. So I got uh, accepted by Lexington Books uh, as of yesterday. That wow. happened. Cool. That's, that's <laughs> amazing. So would you be looking into the research uh, regarding the samurais according to... Yes, I'm familiar with a lot of that already, actually through my master's research mm -hmm. that I did at the University of East Anglia, where I also stayed on and did my PhD. My master's project, though, was on... Um, recent uh, incarnations of Shambara films because samurai films uh, is how they're usually known in the UK and they're known to be action-packed but actually what we know as samurai films is called Shambara okay. in Japan which is the onomatopoeic sound of swords clanging 
So to emphasize that they're action-packed films within this wider genre known in Japan as Jidai Geki, mm -hmm. which is period drama, basically. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different films and stories set in medieval Japanese times. They could be comedies, some are musicals, some are dramas, romances happen a lot. Um, variety of different genres within that. Uh, one particular genre is Shambara, the mm -hmm. sword action film. So samurai culture, I've noticed... Um Whatever I've read also about it, it's completely different if you um, talk to someone who's a, who's a Japanese uh, growing up in Japan and yeah. came over here. Yeah. And then what I kind of thought of samurais, yeah. I mean, even, even the characteristics yeah. of the samurai itself yeah. have changed within Japan also yeah. and also how it's been... Uh, projected and slowly has been changed through different films and also anime. So, I mean, I would love to know a little bit more than what have you found out if you... Yeah, I mean, uh, that's... Um, uh, I know you mentioned earlier as well you wanted to get into wider discussions of stereotyping and orientalism in general in Japan and the samurai is a great, great example. Yes, you're quite right. There are certain perceptions that are uh, become... Uh, we become aware of in Western media, of course, because of their representations um, within films and televisions or certain examples that come from Japan to the UK or are, say, homaged or borrowed from in Hollywood films or bigger budget mainstream films. Um, so the image is often just of sometimes these sword-wielding maniacs who are capable of, you know, um, fatal blows that end up with you know, blood spurting everywhere, that famous stereotype, very popular recently with, because this is popular with a lot of my students at the moment, they're big fans of the Kill Bill films that Tarantino made, <laughs> yes, and the, yes, yes, the imagery yes. of swords used in that, even though that's a modern day set story, it's borrowing a lot of that samurai iconography. So that's how it's stereotyped, but that's just one incarnation of the samurai. Um, and there's there's lots of different ones within within Japanese media. As you say, the reality is is very different. There's there have been some interesting films that have dealt with actually the historical reality of the samurai compared to the popular image. Um, I'm just trying to remember. Yeah, the director's name is Yoji Yamada, who directed the films The Twilight Samurai, The Hidden Blade, and Love and Honor. And if you want a more realistic vision of the samurai films, I would recommend you watch those films. They're, they're the more historically accurate kind of revisionist. Um, kind of in a similar way, the samurai films are also compared to westerns. So these films could be seen as like revisionist westerns that come out sometimes, try to depict the Wild West as it really was, as opposed to the gun... Uh, uh, dueling gunslingers that often appears in westerns there's some samurai films that try to do differently that to dispel that image because as i say that's what was becoming popular in the west and other countries goes along with other famous myths about japanese culture like the ninja is often tied up in this yeah. but again the real ninja was very different they never dressed in black like ninjas <laughs> that we know at the yeah. moment that never happened ninjas were often disguised as local people and would hide blades in their clothes to suddenly assassinate someone. They wouldn't go leaping over rooftops with their amazing agilities or, or, <laughs> or dressing in black. That's that's all a myth. Um, so what 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 is it would be interesting if we can also plug in some sort of ninja historical facts if, oh, if there yeah um I I've, I might have clued it's not my specialist area I might have mentioned all I know there if I'm okay. honest um but it, it it's I think it's kind of tied to one of those films I mentioned the hidden blade it's mentioned as a as a killing technique particular to this samurai clan it's referenced a lot in the film it's not it's not an action film as I said it's a revisionist historical drama. 
Um, but part of what this particular samurai clan is known for is for having this hidden blade technique for how they, you know, win their battles or if if tensions arise. Um, and that I, I think that has. Um, some of those popular myths like oh there's a story of a clan that used to have hidden blades in their clothing and they could um, use them at a moment's notice if someone got on the wrong side of them I think that filtered into this kind of ninja concept um, there uh, I think there's some there may be so I, I wouldn't want to be quoted on this but I remember I'm being recorded <laughs> I, I think there's some historical artifacts that have been found that relate to some of the popular weapons that are seen to be used by ninjas like the the sai knives yeah. the three-pronged scythes wow. and shurikens um, but again a, a, a lot of those and how they're depicted in western media are very much embellished and uh, are very mythic not always that based closely on truth so, so as, as generally I mean humans anywhere whatever culture they are from we are really good at storytelling I and mean, we yeah. are really good at mythicizing yes. most of our stories because it makes it easier and then on the top of it when there is a translation from one culture which yeah. is really alien in a way that it yeah. is very far away yeah. uh, then you add another aspect of consumerism yes and then you add intrinsic properties of the people who are translating that into convert and somehow try to merge their own stories into whatever yeah was done so so yeah. I, I think is that also what your research is trying to understand um, yeah that is part of what I'm very much interested in with these Atoichi films because I the book has been uh, as I say, just accepted for the proposal, which is, is nice news. But now I've got to write the thing, so we'll wait and see. Uh, wait and see on that. Please don't hold your breath, though. No. But uh, it will get done. It's just a question uh, of when. Books are uh, yeah, books. Anyone who have signed a book deal, they are happy yeah. and then miserable. And then and then and yeah, they realise the hard work kicks yes, in. Yes. But no, I hope to explore a lot of what you've just mentioned in relation to Zatoichi, because one of the reasons I want to research it, the book series that it will be for, is called remakes, reboots, and adaptations. Um, so within the book I want to write, I'll be charting a lot of the history as it was, the Zatoichi films, where there was one actor, Shintaro Katsu, who played Zatoichi, the blind swordsman, for 26 films, from first of all from 1962 to 1973, and then he did a comeback film in 1989, that is a bit of, seen as a bit of a, one of these cult classics now. Um, but at the time it was a financial flop, so it didn't work out for him, unfortunately. <laughs> Which is a shame, because in addition to those films, he was prolific as a stage actor and musician. He was a very big celebrity in Japanese culture, but by the 80s his star is fading. And um, also with Zatoichi, he tried to keep it going in after 1973, and he, he did for a few years on television. He also played Zatoichi in 100 TV episodes. So... Um, there are other records held by other actors, especially in Japanese cinema, for playing the same character on screen for even a uh, longer amount of time. There's the uh, It's Tough to Be a Man series, also known as the Torosan series, about a travelling salesman who's always down on his luck and always finds a woman to fall in love with, but then it, it never works out for him mm. in the end. Kind of these bittersweet, uh, melancholic and also sometimes comedic tales. There's 48 films that that actor played as that actor. Um, but I think, actually, it's a different kind of record that Shintaro Katsu holds. I mean, 100 TV episodes and 26 films as the same character. I, I think that's 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 its own type of record there. That is fascinating. Is it is it to do with the, the Japanese 
culture or is it more to do with what audience they were or I, I think it tells us a lot about audiences at the time because the it's tough to be a man series and which went on until the mid uh, if not early 90s from from like the 1970s I think it was that's that's how long that series ran um, that that had some overlaps with the Zatoichi series which was most prolific on screen 1962 to 73 and you have lots of other episodic serial um, franchises that I could mention, not just within samurai genre, but within lots of other different genres. And as well as at this time, you've got emerging some very uh, popular long running TV series, some of which are still on TV to this day. Some are animated, some are live action. So this can tell us a lot about Japanese audience taste, l uh, liking a lot of these serialized tales, which are often the same story over and over again. You can be critical of the, I'm fascinated with the Zatoichi films, but you can be critical of them. A lot of them are the same story over and over again with just very slight changes. Um, but the amount that were made and those TV episodes as well, 26 films and those TV episodes shows there was an audience. And so some people liked this repetitive nature of those stories, just, um, you know, spending some time with that character over and over again. So, so it can tell us a lot about Japanese culture and also what, what happened since then is another reason why I want to write about the series. There have been three remakes in Japanese cinema of the Zatoichi films and also there have been uh, some official and some unofficial remakes in other countries around the world borrowing on this uh, blind swordsman image and clearly taking uh, sometimes they they you, you can clearly see what they're doing they're not even trying to disguise it taking this uh, you know borrowing quite clearly this imagery of the blind swordsman because it's so popular and the audience is so widespread for it they think they can use it in their own films these other filmmakers from other countries so the is is it also somehow related to the myth of their own uh, um, uh, samurais, or or is this a partially? Different... Okay. Uh, the, yeah, there's Zatoichi films are a different take. There are za samurais that appear uh, samurai. Sorry to use the correct plural term um, that appear um, in the Zatoichi tales. Now, the reality of the samurai was that they'd be retainers to local lords, the daimyo in um, Japanese culture from the 17th century to the 19th century when Japan had its isolationist policy. So the samurai were retainers to the local yords who were retainers to the, the shogun and also the emperor at the time. Um, so the samurai would be kind of like knights, medieval knights. They would be called on in times of battle to you know help settle... Um, disputes if if disputes came up between clans although during the the tokugawa era uh, this this time when that was the family that brought about this isolationist policy and this period of stability and peace as it was believed to be at the time where there wouldn't there wouldn't be so many feudal lords they all had to give fealty to the shogun and be loyal during that time, the samurai weren't called on for battle so much. Instead, they were helping with local governance and overseeing, you know, uh, peasants and tradesmen in the area. And they'd be paid salaries through rice or koku. You'd be paid uh, uh, one koku was meant to be enough rice for a year for a man to live on. So your salary was paid according to that. You could be paid more than one koku a year. And if you if you had so much more lifetime amounts of rice. Um, or did I say lifetime? I think I meant to say what, uh, enough rice for a man for a year. I think that's how it yeah. was paid. Um, if you had enough of those amounts, um, you were seen to be hugely rich, depending on how much rice you were um, given as payment. 
Um, so they would often help with local governing matters. And so there, uh, from there, the, the myth has arisen because they always walked around cameraing their swords because of that fact as well. The, the myth has partly emerged in popular cinema, again, of the action, of the, the crazy wielding, samurai-wielding yeah. maniac that often appears in these films who could be a good hero, her, heroic person doing that with his sword or could be, you know, equally the villain. Um, so that... So the... So the so, okay, so uh, I would love to clarify um, if we are talking of samurais right now. Yep. Um how it was in 15th century maybe and then how it changed after 16th century when ah, shoguns right. yeah. got really yeah power. and then what what are the connections uh, it actually created into the different characters which are then yep. being represented and then yep. you can tell me about the uh, the story of the blind sword oh uh, yes yeah, yes yeah, cool. yeah. oh yeah that, that that's uh, are quite happy to do that because it does all link together before the Tokugawa era which is I forget the exact year in the 17th century but it was the 17th century this happened there was a I forgot who the Tokugawa family were fighting for for control over Japan but this is one of the reasons they set out an isolationist policy afterwards to bring stability and peace so there won't be no more of these feuding lords trying to claim so much land from Japan for their own rule or trying to rule over all of Japan for their own reasons. The family that won out uh, of the Battle of Sekigahara, I think the name is, I've forgotten who was in on the losing side of that battle, but the Tokugawa dynasty ran through, uh, won, sorry, uh, were on the winning side of that battle, established this isolationist policy and this period of stability, because before that, as I've said, it was lo lots of local lords were in power over different areas of Japan, all fighting for each other, kind of like in, you know, medieval kingdoms in the UK and other countries in uh, medieval times in centuries before that, all fighting each other for power and borders of their territory. So once the Tokugawa family wins out and has control over most of the um, regions in Japan, they bring about this period of stability. The local lords are in charge. The, samurais are, uh, their law, uh, the samurai are their loyal retainers helping the local lords to oversee governing of the region. And um, that helps to start off from the, the top end to the low end, the kind of hierarchy, social hierarchy that's in place in Japan at the time. And this this helps to explain where Zatoichi comes in as well. So you have the local, well, at the, at the absolute top of the chain, you have the emperor who's um, a, more of a symbolic figure at this time, still to this day in Japan, more of a symbolic figure than an influential one. Then you had the shogunate, led by the shogun and his advisors, um, governing over all areas of Japan. You had the local lords, who were the daimyo. You had their, the samurai, their loyal retainers. Below that, I believe, uh, next highest on this, this caste system that um, Japanese medieval society had were um, merchants and specialist uh, tradesmen and craftsmen. Um, then you had the peasants and the farmers. And um, there were also at this time as well, these they were trying to go against the caste system. You had the Yakuza, the gamblers, um, and some through various corrupt schemes that they got involved in, sometimes involving samurai, sometimes involving other government officials. They could accumulate a lot of wealth and gather uh, and be quite powerful and influential in their own right. But um, strictly speaking, according to the Japanese uh caste system they were quite low down the official food chain weren't seen as that high in society and then you have the lowest of the low the hinin 
uh, as they were called in Japan, um, the kind of non-people in this caste system. And that's people who are um, disabled, perhaps mentally ill, criminals, um, but also blind people. Um, which is where Zatoichi comes mm. in. Yeah, he's the lowest of the low because he's blind. He's only good for either two types of employment. Now, if you were female and blind, you would usually become a musician called a gozen. Um, if you were blind, uh, a blind man, you could become a musician, but you'd also be expected to be a masseur. Uh, that was the only other employment open to you. So Zatoichi, when you're first int introduced to him in the films, he's, he's a traveling masseur wandering medieval Japan. Um, ends up in a different town in every film and TV episode. And that's how his primary source of income is his massage skills. But uh, he often tells these... It, the story slightly, can slightly vary from film to film, uh, either when Shitara Katsu's playing him or another actor in the later remakes. Um, he, he always says at one point he was, he was sick of being treated lower than dirt because of his status and uh, he kept having people he never goes into specifics but he always says like people picked on him and things so he learnt some sword fighting skills and not only does he wander the medieval Japanese landscape looking for work he also hides in his cane a sword which he is more than capable of using when trouble comes his way if anyone threatens him um, it's a quick uh, draw of his sword and they've usually lost a limb if not their life <laughs> I mean, I can see already you explaining that the pull in that story. I mean, all of us, of course, relate to someone who's down and they mm -hmm. have this superpower, mm -hmm. which they are using not for the benefit, either for, for uh, you know, uh, enhancing their ego or, yeah. or maybe gathering power, but actually to defend themselves. Yep. And let's say actually prevailing justice in a yeah. way. Whatever. No, he he is seen as uh, in a lot of the stories he is defending other people that are downtrodden, and he's he hears about something going on, and doesn't think is right. He will he will try, he often tries his best, but this is how the story is constructed because that's the reason everyone goes to see the film. He might try first of all to find peaceful means to the solution and give good advice, but it it all builds up to an excuse for a massive. Not so much bloodbath in the early Zatoichi films. That did come later in the 70s, though, when they're trying to bring more audiences in, uh, 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 still bring an audience into the cinema. They did add more blood, and it was more of a bloodbath later, but it's usually just a, um, you know, a very action-packed fight scene at the end with um, Shintaro Katsu doing very well because he was well-practiced at this, at fighting with his eyes closed because he would depict the blind man as, as an eyes closed. Some some people like to pause the Zatoichi films and try and tell, well, actually, no, you can see his eyes are open there. And that led into a discussion of with this story, actually, is he blind? Is he just faking it, this character of Zatoichi? Um, but there's been lots of confirmations in, in some of the Zatoichi films that he is actually blind and he can't read and things like that. Um, but a lot of that stemmed from how Shintaro Katsu played the character, but he did do it very successfully. He he practiced a lot, choreographed his sword fight scenes very well. So a lot of what you see on screen is him um, scaring probably the other stuntsmen as he <laughs> as he flings a sword around with his eyes closed. <laughs> I mean, as we are talking about these characters, as we are talking about Japanese history, and I think most of us maybe have heard of it in some way, in some manner. But as we are getting to know this individual through um, whatever um, series anyone has seen or how you are explaining it, it actually tells you the similarities mm -hmm. of of most of the cultures which you, when you realize and also the, the um, common underpinning and the pull of those uh, archetypical stories 
yeah. if you tell them in a in a way as you are talking about yeah. it and actually it's a good discourse yeah because uh, this is exactly the part of your research which you were talking about a lot of distribution companies yeah and they have their own biases yeah it actually becomes something uh fantasize and maybe even fetishize in in yeah. some way and, and yeah. you put it on shelf and that's the only thing which you pick up and yeah. then you start to believe in that yeah. story and yeah exactly these can become um uh myths that people think are reality in terms of how certain japanese stories are are told like um it's maybe a bit of an extreme example but the, uh, with the Zatoichi films that you've got to watch for your life wandering around the landscape it's uh, no telling of who's around the next corner and who's going to suddenly draw their sword and kill you that's the the environment it seems to depict in some of those films as i say it's very much an embellishment of the historical reality of the time but yes this does also relate to distribution as you said and, and lots of the other points that my research that's already published has has touched on um this does relate to wider aspects with other japanese films and how they've been marketed and come to the uk you've mentioned in your notes earlier you wanted to explore this concept of orientalism and it very much ties into that how japanese culture when western culture comes into contact with it whether you're from america the uk or even uh, there's there's quite an appetite for japanese media in lots of western european countries it, it's seen as something exotic and other it's exoticized and that's very much what i would saeed was talking about when he published his work on orientalism in 1979 yeah. and lots of other research that i've come across on japanese films that's been published since and i've also touched on this area says there's still a lot of evidence for saeed's theory um certain aspects Aspects of different cultures around the world are, are orientalized, exoticized, seen as this weird and wonderful other. And the debate, where the debate happens is, is that something because of what happens in Japanese culture, where these things come from? Or is it more to do with the marketing and distribution of them? Like um, the, f the famous example this is always relates back to, um, lots of other researchers got to this first. This is why I haven't been able to write as, as much on it as, as some other researchers I know, like Oliver Jew and Chi and Shin and uh, Daniel Martin. Uh, they wrote th about this in relation to Tartan Asia Extreme. Uh, a famous UK label from a few years ago got started in the late, it was a sub-label of the Tartan Video Company. The Tartan Video Company had been going since the 80s, but the, the Asia Extreme label was particularly famous, went from the late 90s until the whole company unfortunately went bankrupt in 2008 because they one of the reasons, it wasn't the only reason, was that they were f uh, flooding the market with too many of these Asia extreme films because they just thought that's what the British people wanted. More and more of these weird and wonderful films. Um, lots of them were tied to famous Japanese examples like the horror film Ring, Dark Water, uh, Takashi Miike's Audition, and one of their biggest hits that they did uh, release first was Battle Royale. Yeah. Um, and as I said, they, they just thought, oh, that's what the audience wants. And they decided to tie lots of other countries into this too. Um, films from Thailand, Hong Kong, and said, oh, we'll give you lots more of these weird and wonderful films. Um, but not every one of them was a success. And I say that's not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons the com company unfortunately went bankrupt in 2008. They're still quite influential, though, even though the company did go under. Um, their catalogue is sometimes re-released or picked up by other labels. So every now and again, um, it seems to be a popular audience that is still in the, the uh, it, it, 
particularly in the UK, with the UK public, is there still an audience for this exotic other type film, a kind of Asia extreme film, whether it's a horror film or an action film. There's still some distributors who do, don't call themselves Asia extreme or anything like that, but that every now and again they will release one of these films because they know there's still a market out there for it. So um, other directors who are actually in Japan or Thailand, I, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure, Ong Baek? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, yeah, was it uh, a Thai movie? Because it's a yeah, Malta? that's a that's Thai a... movie. Yes, yeah. um, so a lot of this does relate to the martial arts genre as well, which Ong Baek is a great example mm -hmm. of. Um, it introduced the world to Tony Jaa, who's yeah. now gone, gone on to star in quite a lot of... Uh, big budget action blockbusters since. In fact, him and uh, another big uh, up-and-coming martial arts star now, Iko Uwais, mm -hmm. I think his name is, who was in The Raid. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yes, it, yes. He's been teaming up with Tony Jaa and lots of other action stars for lots of uh, other Asian martial arts films. So, yeah, Ong Bak is a, a kind of different example, but sh showing that this is a, these views are akin to martial arts films as well. It's a really good one, Ong Bak. The sequel's not so much, but uh, Ong, Ong, the first Ong Bak... Um, very good. It's really yeah. good. Even Raid is really good. Oh, the Raid yeah. is yeah. brilliant. Yeah, I I get my students to watch it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, for my transnational screens <laughs> lessons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these films are made by the directors who are born and lived in that yeah. country. Well, uh, actually, though we've just mentioned the Raid. The Raid's a bit of an exception. That's directed by a Welshman. Oh wow called Gareth, um, I always get mixed up with Gareth Edwards. No, Gareth Edwards did um, Star Wars Rogue One. It's Gareth Evans okay. who directed The Raid. Sorry, I always get those two mixed up. Um, and yeah, he's he's originally hails from Wales, um, but he went over to Indonesia to research this particular martial arts fighting style, Silat, and his first idea was to make a documentary about this martial arts style that he became aware of. Um, but then he found the people that were most knowledgeable on it and they all wanted to make a fiction film rather than a documentary. So the first one that they made was actually called Morantau, again with Iko Uwais, uh, on a much lower budget, although it wasn't successful, and led to the, the idea for the raid. And since then, um, some filmmaking careers of both Gareth Evans and his actors. And the raid has also had a sequel. We're hoping for a third one, fans of those first two. <laughs> Um, but their their careers have bloomed ever since. Okay. Yeah. Sec is the second one good? It's on my list. Oh, have you not seen it yet? Oh, it's yet. very much a it watch. Is? It's 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 one of these sequels. It could be criticised for doing this. It's a typical sequel thing. It's much bigger and bloodier okay. than the first one. Gives you a lot more for your money. Some people complained about that, but I thought it was brilliant. It's okay. it's, a, it's still a great film, but for different reasons. I was in my sensitive mood and I started watching it. The first scene is... I think the first sequence is really brutal. Oh, in the raid? I think so. It's yeah. raid two. Oh, in the raid two, yes. Two. Somewhere in the fields. Yes. And I was like, I, I know where it is going. I think I might, it's not a good time for me to watch no, it. No, no, you have to be in so, a certain I, mood. It's yeah. very brutal and bloody, okay. I will say that. It's, it has got a fantastic car chase sequence in it too. Yeah. <laughs> you have sold it. You have yeah. sold it. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So, about these films actually, and I, I'm, of course, I one of the first time I saw... Um, Japanese anime. Mm -hmm. uh, long time ago, I, I was finishing my bachelor's. Um, I mean, it was not that long ago, but from my perspective, it looks like long time ago. I I think I saw uh, a Japanese anime series, and it's, it was not even that popular one. But um, as you are saying that um, that urge we all have of something strange and wonderful, mm -hmm. 
I think even if you are growing up around those cultures, still, if if it's if the story is presented in a way which actually somehow tickles those kind of um, desires of yours, or or not even desires, I would call it uh, like a fundamental curios- curious property of being human. Yeah, is that you 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 love that uh, mysterious, tremendous other. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and you want to be terrified by it, but you but that also give you a feel of being wonder wondrous. Yeah. I think sometimes uh, these kind of properties are also used by certain media companies, and even, yeah, and I think it's it's there's nothing good or bad about it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's why we tell stories, so we want to yeah. grasp the attention. You have something to say, so you say it, and the audience listen to it. And that's how brilliant directors and storytellers somehow grabs that that essence yeah. of of uh, showing a film. But the thing which I would love to get your opinion on is mm-hmm. this thing which we all kind of feel and have for certain different stories and films, and especially when you're watching. For me, it would be Japanese anime, and you have this very yep. specific abstract feeling towards which you are also. Um, going while you're watching it it is kind of fundamentally common to most of the people and uh, you do have it inside of you but do you think it is what we feel comfortable if we can associate that to other and then once it's over and once you have seen the film or listened to the story you come back to who you are where you are comfortable because Oh, so um, so part of the appeal is escaping into that other world, that other culture. Yeah, escapism. Yeah, it's one of the fundamental reasons. Like, I'm pretty sure there's books being written on that. Um, uh, the escapism that stories provide, and some people are appe- uh, The appeal is more to some people. Might uh, a story might appeal to them more that with the surrounding that they're familiar with and characters they're familiar with, but other people want to escape perhaps different reasons and get lost in uh, an, an, an other type of world, an exotic other world. So hence a film from uh, Japan or even Japan's past or supposedly set in it. Yeah, that that could be one of those reasons. And uh, it's also um, a lot of my colleagues interrogate this concept of, of verisimilitude. It's not just to, uh, enough to have a, an escapist story. Um, you've also got to have uh, make sure that the audience is willing to suspend their disbelief. Uh, that, that verisimilitude, it's called, um, making the audience go along with you so that they will, you know, engage with this story. Yeah, true. And I mean, of course, sometimes you can feel like that you are trying to escape, and then this kind of escapism shows certain part of your own self mm-hmm. in that yeah. escapism. Yeah, where some people come back and brought a lot of good things and some people come back and they don't want to face whatever they found out would would that actually somehow relate to categorizing and uh, making these kind of concept into that orientalism which we were talking about where you actually label these things so it's more comfortable for you to go into that alien parts of um, your for some people it were it could that could well be the case that they feel more comfortable going into that exotic othered world um, more than dealing with, you know, everyday reality and the mundane things. I mean, that could lead to um, it could be seen as in some ways a kind of a negative stereotype going along with it. This is uh, again relates to 
um, the culture immediately in Japan where uh, fans of Weird and Wonderful, because it is Weird and Wonderful, I know researchers who specifically focus on anime and manga and they just admit, oh yeah, some of these titles are just bizarre, really are bizarre. Um, so some of them are, and um, sometimes the fans were seen in Japan as weird and wonderful as well. The uh, It's often a popular phrase used in Western countries now, the otaku, like the dedicated fan. But that was seen as a very negative connotation when it first was used in, in uh, popular language and uh, lots of media in Japan when uh, around the 1970s and 80s. Um, if you were seen as an otaku, it was seen as kind of something dangerous. Um, this dangerous obsessive fan Hmm. so it could be seen in some negative ways but there's also some positive things as well there's people who've been willing to escape into this world and help it shape their lives and they can actually make a a job out of it especially now that cosplay that act is becoming so popular now people dressing up as their favourite anime, manga or video game characters there are people that have made industries and successful businesses out of that because their their style is so popular the specific skill set that they've developed is actually something that they can commodify so uh, coming back uh, going to Japanese studios um, I always pronounce studio Ghibli but oh yes you, you said yeah, no, some people say Ghibli. studio Ghibli, Ghibli but I believe the pronunciation is meant to be Ghibli purely okay. because it comes from an Italian word I can't remember the original Italian word because I think Ghibli is a um, modification of the original t- Italian word for wind oh wow Uh, which is pronounced similar to Ghibli, but uh, again, I'm not an expert on Italian either. I can't remember that exact word, but uh, yes, there are a very popular bunch of films from that studio. Yes. So so that studio has used an Italian word just a coincidence, or is there a link? I think, well, ha- Hayao Miyazaki is one of the most famous directors associated with that studio, and he's one of the founding members, along with uh, Isao Takahada, who sadly passed away, I think it was last year. It was very recent. And, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I th- the word was picked by Miyazaki, okay. um, as well as Takahada, I think, because uh, they, they had, um, you can see in a lot of their films, a fascination, a fascination with Western countries and particularly European countries. Italy crops up a lot. So I think that's one of the reasons why they picked this Italian word, Ghibli, meaning wind, um, for their studio. One of the, and I, I mean, I've, Uh, when I was growing up, I was fascinated by storytelling and films and uh, a lot of uh, self-destructive pattern of mine might be watching a lot of films, but I actually kind of got a lot out of it. So yeah. it, it averages out. I, I'm envious of that. It's, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm lecturing film studies and program leading the degree at the moment, but it gives you a lot of work. You don't always have, annoyingly, in my field, you don't always have time to watch all the films that you want. So I'm very jealous yeah. of hearing that. <laughs> that was before I started uh, jobs. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Unfortunately, yeah. that was yeah. my bachelor's and yeah. maybe master's yeah. time. Oh, and I had a lack of uh, many sleepless nights just watching a lot of films. But, mm-hmm. I mean, in all those films which I've watched, one of my top films, which uh, one of the films which I'm emotionally also connected still, or the films which actually inspired me in both my some of the career moves which I've done are from Studio Ghibli. Mm. Wait, what, what's your, yeah. your favorite film? Uh, I mean, one of the most, one of the really good ones recently, which is uh, Red Turtle, uh, the Red oh, Turtle, yeah. but which is not 
I mean, it's not, it's not it's, technically, not technically yeah, but yeah. still somehow associated. No, no, it was uh, partially financed and produced, I think, yeah. by Studio Ghibli. Yeah. Um, but they they saw what the director Dudok Dewitt, yeah. I think he is a Dutch animator, yeah. um, was doing with some of his earlier shorts, and they asked him to complete a, f- a feature length film. And it's uh, it's a really good job. It's a beautiful film, I think. True. Um, yeah. So, what what is the uh, what is the influence of that studio, and how does that studio fit in into your research, or how's the story? Well, I must admit, I'm not researching on Studio Ghibli directly. I would refer you to because they've published some recent research on this. My former PhD supervisor at University of East Anglia, Rainer Dennison, and also James Rendell, who's based at Cardiff, they they joined forces and created a, a wonderful. Uh, edited collection on Princess Mononoke recently, but also a special edition of a journal. I'm afraid I forget which journal it is, but a special edition all about Studio Ghibli um, productions. Um, but there are some parallels that I found yeah. with my research with what's going on in Studio Ghibli, because again, it's one of those films where they've been much more popular and successful, like some of the Japanese horror films I mentioned earlier um, around the world, because some of the Ghibli films now have been winning Oscars, of course. Um, uh, that happened for... Uh, they keep getting nominations from Spirited Away onwards, and Spirited Away got the win for... Oh, I always forget which one it was. I don't think it was foreign language film. I think it was animated feature wow. it won. Yeah, that's big. Uh, yeah. yeah, so Spirited Away won that. And si- since then, um, you know, that's that's helped its marketing around the world. They're not all necessarily always marketed as something weird and wonderful from Japan, although there's partially that expectation again because it's anime, um, anime films. Uh, that, that expectation goes along with that. But they're also like a really popular and almost mainstream uh, it's uh, they're often described as mainstream form of uh, anim- uh, category yeah. of anime films. So so let's uh, also do some service other than uh, Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away. Yeah, which are just, uh, just they're, they're great. Just but Mon- Princess Mononoke is one of my favorites. I'm I'm torn between that one and Nausicaa. That's, okay, that's my favorite. Yeah, yeah, Nausicaa yeah. Valley of the Wind. Yeah. So uh, that that was my actually question. That could you recommend other two? Which oh well, I've said I've said my favorites there, but there are lots of others that are enjoyed. Uh, technically, Nausicaa was released before for the founding of Studio Ghibli, so it doesn't actually count. Mm. Um, And Miyazaki did some other films which have been kind of released and marketed um, as uh, as Studio Ghibli films, but again, they, they came just before. Some of them are really worth a watch. There's The Little Norse Prince, which he did with Isao Takahata, and The Castle of Cagliostro, which involves a famous Japanese anime character called Lupin III, who's seen as this like gentleman thief. He's like a criminal version of James Bond. He's, he's quite a fun character. Um, and then and then I'm trying to remember what technically was the first Ghibli film. Oh, Raina would kill me if she heard this. Um <laughs> Uh, I mean, uh, after Nausicaa, what did come after Nausicaa? I've, uh, oh, yes, My Neighbor Totoro. Oh, okay. um, that's a really good one. Also, though, uh, it's a wonderfully heartwarming and just happy film overall, My Neighbor Totoro. Released the same year, though, as, as another notorious Ghibli title, Grave of the Fireflies, which yes. is all about the the war and how the bombings of Tokyo are affecting two children in particular. It's just a tragically heart-wrenching tale yes that used to get shown on a double bill with my neighbor totoro they would show grave of the fireflies first and this was aimed at kids 
and they'd all be in tears by the end of it. So Totoro was the next film in the double bill to cheer them up afterwards. <laughs> yeah, the, you mentioning that name it gives me goosebumps. I still, yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Oh, it still, it still uh, makes me become a puddle of tears. That film, it's got such power to it. Yeah, true. I, I also forgot because this was interesting in Japanese cinema. Uh, I just saw recently, and I, unfortunately, I forgot the name of the film. The story was based. Uh, on uh, this girl who fell in love with the um, guy who can turn into oh yeah wolf wolf children oh wolf children yes, yes. Um, well what's happened since Miyazaki has announced a few times now that he's retiring but um, he did this after he released his supposed last film was oh dear I used to teach a class based around this this is humiliating uh, what was his supposed last film I think it was the uh, it's Princess the... and the uh, which Mary and the no no, no no that was a different director um, and that was actually with Studio Ponock because oh, okay. Studio Ghibli is technically not making split. films yeah, anymore yeah, yeah. yeah and there's uh, some of the talent has gone to this other studio yeah. that started up called Studio Ponock um But there's still the Studio Ghibli Museum that you can visit in Japan. That's not going anywhere. It's a massive tourist attraction. <laughs> uh, the, the final film that Miyazaki made was about um, the designer of the Zero airplanes that got used in the Second mm. World War. Yep, yep. And, oh, this is terrible that no. I've forgotten the name <laughs> of that film. I do remember watching... Yeah. The name and the poster of yeah. what you are mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, uh, do you remember the name? No. No. I okay. I wish yeah. I would. Yeah. <laughs> I no. I can. I can remember what the poster looked like. This is. This yeah. is terrible of me to forget that name. <laughs> uh, it's. It's really worth a watch. I don't think it's necessarily one of his best films, um, mm -hmm. but it's really worth a watch. It's a good one. Anyway, he announced that that was his last film and he'd be retiring on that. But the latest news is he's surprise, surprise, working on another film. He couldn't stay in <laughs> retirement that long. No, I can't. Um, and so w when that. That was announced though to come back to wolf children yeah. sorry because we went off on another no, tangent okay. there um there have been lots of directors that have emerged since who have been touted as the next the next miyazaki because they've become so popular there's been uh makoto shinkai who did your name and some other big anime films before that your name was a massive success recently it broke all sorts of records in japan and got people wondering oh is this the next miyazaki because it's such a popular anime film and the other director being talked about in that way is the director of wolf children and this is again quite embarrassing because i've forgotten mm -hmm. that director's name but he's also done mirai which is yes. out recently I've heard that's very good. I haven't yeah. got to seeing that yet. Wolf Children's great. He also did The Boy and the Beast. I it, that that as, is the film which really I am. Yeah, this is the film which we I definitely have to watch before Christmas. Oh yes, and and it it does. See, I love uh, archetypical stories and yeah. you know uh, hero's journey, and it yeah. seems look like it's something quite, like quite that. a lot of these films will be turning up on Amazon Prime if yeah. anyone's yeah. got a subscription on there. Your name and uh, Boy and the Beast are okay. on there, so well, I'd, I'd recommend those. Um, so, so this is actually part of your research. Uh, the the um yeah distribution yeah yes. i mean the media how the media technology is changing and how actually the film industry and also the directors and the art is getting affected by yeah. these uh, these uh, different channels yeah this is all being talked about mainly at the again my research hasn't specifically touched on this but a lot of the researchers that we gathered for the books uh, that i published last year um cult media and dvd and blu-ray 
uh, DVD, Blu-ray and beyond. Um, lots of them were focusing on the, the big talking point why lots of uh, researchers are looking into this at the moment is Netflix, of course, shaking things up. Um, they're, they're always reporting that their subscriber numbers are growing year on year. Um, their stock price is hugely going up. And as a result, they're spending more and more money which is where the questions start to arise on producing original content. And some of it is hugely popular, been winning awards. Uh, it's becoming must talk about and must watch TV. Um, but some people have been questioning really, okay, your your budget is increasing year on year with how you're plowing money into this. What's what's the end game here? How can you, how, how for how much longer can you go on that uh, financial model of just burning through all this cash to make original content? How much of a success story are you going to be? I mean, in some ways, um, it's undeniable the success they've been having. They've been attracting more people to that platform than, say, cinemas. Okay. Uh, other cinemas and studios have been a bit worried about this, especially as Netflix have been buying up so much more talent to make for them movies as well as TV series. Um, the most recent release to get talked about in this way was Roma, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who did also did um, Gravity and Children of Men. Yeah. Um, his his latest film, Roma, which lots of critics have been loving, is a Netflix original release. Wow. Is it already released? Yeah, yeah, it it's is? already on oh, Netflix. Wow. And uh, but it the, what Netflix have also been doing though they've they've been realizing that the cinema still has some power so they have been giving some of these films limited theatrical releases so that they can be nominated for more awards but they're still trying to shake up the status quo in terms of this also leads into the theatrical window release schedules because if you release a film traditionally these days the infrastructure is mostly set up you're at the cinema first then you wait about three or four months. It can vary from country to country until you have the DVD release. And then shortly after that will be your digital releases, um, be on TV. Um, so it's often known as the long tail, these other markets in which your film can make money further yeah. on down the line. Yeah. Um, people have been wondering how much that is being eroded away because there's there's so much of a, because of the technology we have now, there's so much of an, an instant gratification culture. People want this stuff now. So, but the studio, the big studios seem to be really against eroding that theatrical window, making it shorter between DVD and Blu-ray, even though there's a big argument to say that could help them um, in the long term to combat issues like piracy just doing multi-platform yeah. releases people uh, there's arguments saying people would still go to the cinema if they prefer that rather than watching it at home yeah. on say netflix or or pay-per-view through amazon prime or other services so ne netflix has released quite a lot of uh, films yeah. I, I think bright was one yeah with bright Will was Smith, one of theirs yeah. outlaw king outlaw king yeah another recent Chris one Pine, and then roma uh, uh, Roma, Roma most recently yeah. with Alfonso Cuaron yeah. and yeah. then there was um, one with uh, Natalie Portman um, ah. oh, oh yeah. yes that was earlier this year Annihilation mm -hmm. Annihilation yes, yeah. forgot about that one yes. of the very weird films they spent like 30 very, million very, yeah they like spent that. a lot there and it was the uh, uh, again really popular director there he's mostly yeah. known for his scripts before he started directing Alex Garland I think is the name um, wrote, wrote a few scripts of Danny Boyle really good films um, but also did before that Ex Machina oh, which oh. is a really good sci-fi film he did Ex Machina? yeah oh wow of yeah. course Yeah. Oh, and um, Annihilation was an interesting one I think there was outcry in America for this film to be in 
the theatres as well as on Netflix, but it didn't happen in the UK. But I can proudly say that our students here at Greenwich decided to circumvent that and one of them just logged into Netflix on one of the university PCs and we played it on the big screen in oh, the lecture theatre. It was a really good night. Brilliant. Yeah. brilliant. <laughs> I do, I would, I would uh, plug in, I, I do get a chance to watch most of my movies on a projector. Yeah. So... Yeah. No, I have a colleague in the department, Chris Chris <laughs> Nunn, who's who's very keen to do one of these podcasts oh, as well for one time. Perfect, perfect. Um, he he has that at home as well. Oh, he perfect. he loves his watching his films on the projector big screen. I haven't got one set up in my flat yet, but I might look into it in future. Definitely. But do, have you noticed any difference between the films who are made by Netflix and actually the films which are being made? Um, well, there's not that much difference i think some of them have been debated over in terms of quality but that happens with week by week hollywood releases anyway um uh, uh, so some of them have been critiqued especially early ones one of the first netflix productions was no one was quite sure why this was done um but it was a success in some countries was crouching tiger hidden dragon 2 which was several years that came out about 15 16 years after the original that came out through netflix that was one of theirs. So there was some odd titles. Um, Bright wasn't well received by critics, but actually got a lot of views on Netflix. It's been the same with uh, actually um, Adam Sandler films. Uh, mm-hmm. Adam Sandler has been contracted a lot for productions by Netflix recently. And lots of people will be wondering why these films have got really low scores on Rotten Tomatoes. But Netflix have been saying, nope, we've had lots of people watching them. So they 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 know the formula that works. And now they're just trying to become, I think they're trying to become more prestigious as well. Because Netflix productions are starting to buy up talent like Alfonso Cuaron. Mm. I've mentioned uh, Bong Joon-ho, very prolific Korean director, has made a Netflix original called Okja. Um, I quite like that director and the films he makes. Okja is a good film. I wouldn't say it's his best film, though. I do like some of his earlier works. Um, And, uh, oh, who else was I going to mention? Oh, yes, the Coen brothers, also very recently. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, that was a Netflix original, Mm -hmm. their Western movie. So they, they, um, part of them burning through lots and lots of cash to make originals, they've been fueling that into a lot of their Netflix original series. Um, but they seem to be more keen to build up their film catalogue now and get a lot more prestigious talent involved because it's not just the names behind the scenes that I focused on, they're the directors. They, they're getting um, very prolific actors on screen. As you said, Will Smith, Natalie Portman, yeah. Chris Pine in Outlaw King oh, and the, the cast, the, the ensemble cast they have for Buster Scruggs as well. No, yeah, no doubt that uh, Netflix is really good with their series. I mean, they, they're definitely mm. one of the... I mean, one of the best series or or even popular series which you yeah. they have created, like Mind Hunters or um, yeah. uh, Stranger Things. Stranger Things, and, yeah. And and most many of the Netflix series definitely they are much more uh, quality wise, and I would also say artistically they give more freedom. Mm. That's what I get. Yeah, in that's the report. that's the appeal. Um, but. Um, a lot of the research again dealt with in the uh, cult media and dvd blu-ray and beyond books that i co-edited um is saying uh, also saying that netflix isn't the be all and end all um people are saying oh that's going to be the future we're all going to be paying subscription services rather than our tv licenses and having tv sets in the future it's not necessarily the case if you look into research by the in the UK, we have the Broadcast Audience Research Board, BARB. Uh, you can visit their site, barb.co.uk, for free and see like weekly ratings and how they gather that data. And they do say a lot of people still just do watch their TV set and broadcast TV. 
from week to week. Um, audience numbers also spike when there's live events being shown, which aren't shown on Netflix. Things like sports events, um, reality TV and talent competitions, um, some must-watch TV, recently BBC series Bodyguard, which has been bought up by Netflix, but first of all, it was popular on broadcast television. It was a really big hit for BBC. Which was the bodyguard? Uh, that was the one with, oh, I forget the actor's name, he was in Game of Thrones. Tom Hiddleston? Oh, no, 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 no not Tom Hiddleston. Uh, bodyguard was, it was written by Jed Mercurio, okay. who also did Line of Duty. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, sorry, again, I've forgotten that actor's oh, name okay. who was in it. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, so uh, I'm wondering when you are saying that, of course, everyone is talking about that, how Netflix is going to actually sustain this kind of a model. Yeah, because it's not actually the be-all and end-all. As I was saying earlier, there's the, uh, there's competitors for Netflix. Amazon's doing a lot. I mean, it's massive in the marketplace for a variety of reasons, mainly being an online retailer, but it also provides music as well as its film and TV shows. And it has Amazon Studios as well. It's becoming more of a force in filmmaking and production. There's, there's other streaming services becoming popular, like Hulu and HBO have yeah. their own service. Uh, Disney is going to be starting their own streaming service soon with their content. So wouldn't wouldn't these kind of um, services, when they are coming up, and they are going to be making some quality films, mm -hmm. tell us what kind of an audience and what kind of a society we are turning out to be if we are not well, willing to go to the cinema? Well, that's the thing. The BFI have actually been reporting in the last couple of years that sometimes, in some years, cinema attendance has been increasing. So there's still a market for that. It's just... Um, for, I think for what types of films an audience tastes is changing. Um, obviously, the big blockbusters like uh, uh, comic book films or other big blockbuster franchises are always going to be popular year on year. The Marvel films are a really good example of that. Um, and they, they draw people into the cinemas. But there's also an increasing number of niche audiences coming up, um, which helps uh, highlight cinema going as well as uh, as consumption in other formats because um, cinemas, uh, certain cinemas around the country or in, in any of the parts of the world still have a popular audience, uh, uh, a regular audience that goes along to them, maybe just to see something a bit different, like uh, sh showing certain cult films or films uh, that are re-released to celebrate a certain anniversary. Um, or uh, what's quite popular with some research that I'm aware of by Helen Kennedy and Sarah Atkinson, uh, they're looking into live cinema events where you, you know you have themed screenings of a film. Um, it might be uh, screened in a weird, wonderful location, or they might recreate sets uh, from the film uh, when they go uh, uh, when audiences pay their money to go and see the film. This happens a lot with Secret Cinema, which is a very popular event in London, but it's become so popular now the ticket prices are extortionate. Um, <laughs> So there's the, uh, the there's there's signs of um, cinema exhibitors uh, and cinema chains diversifying with what they show because media tastes are diversifying and increasing a lot. You see this with home media formats and what um, content is being offered by Netflix, Amazon, and those competitors, but also in other forms of media consumption. Like as I said, TV viewing is still a big draw for certain audiences, and what I'm particularly interested in is also Blu-ray and, and DVD releases because this is what a lot of my research is focused on with Japanese cinema, especially live-action films. They they haven't done that well recently at cinemas, even though there've been some 
recent successes because of big names like uh, at the moment in quite a lot of UK cinemas Hirokazu Koreeda's uh, Shoplifters is playing because that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes and he's he's become a very popular director from his earlier films so there are few and far between Japanese films that are have successful theatrical runs and uh, what I've heard from a lot of distributors that I've managed to get in touch with people uh, that I know at labels like Third Window um, Terracotta and some labels related to um, anime like Manga Entertainment and Anime Limited oh and also uh, niche labels like Arrow Video and Eureka who are popular in the UK um, they often find that Asian films, not just Japanese films, uh, can struggle with theatrical releases. So they don't often go by that means. And also there's a, a similar disinterest with um, companies like Netflix and Amazon buying them up for their streaming services, even for just pay-per-view transactional uh, transactional video on demand, TVOD, it's often mentioned. Um, so the go-to market that they have, the market where they can make a profit on for their the releases of these films is still Blu-ray and DVD. Mm. There's still an audience for those formats, even though uh, certain newspapers, especially The Guardian, uh, I've noticed some other critics and researchers saying this, oh, The Guardian's at it again uh, with articles like DVD is dead. It isn't. It's still drawing into the UK economy um, hundreds of millions of pounds worth of revenue per year. There's still statistics published by the British Association of Screen Entertainment and other related sources, uh, institutions they're associated with that's, that says, yes, it's a big money-making format year on year. That is actually surprising because yeah. you would... I, I, when I read the book uh, and how, however much I could, it was very surprising to me that this kind of format is still yeah. uh, one of the big ones, actually. Yeah. Um, so when I was thinking definitely that, oh, yeah, online digital content might be because that is what... Yeah. What we are using and maybe our friends and the age group might... No, be. lots of people are using it for reasons. I don't deny it. I do it too. It's it's convenient, definitely. We can access these things now on our smartphones, our tablets, our laptops. We don't even have to watch the TV set anymore if we want to, yep. although there's an increasing range of plug-in devices, so you can, um, because because they, these companies realize that that's still an appeal. So this is why you have your Google Chromecast, your Amazon Fire Stick, and, and things like that. Um, so it is hugely convenient and that's why more and more people are taking it up but there's some problems with this format as well with this uh, digital culture that we're moving to things are quite temporary with DVD and Blu-ray um, you maybe do have to uh, be careful with your discs to how you store them in, in certain scenarios but uh, in most cases um, that's a format that you could go back to again and again. They won't wear out like VHS tapes. If you take good care of them, the, that film is stored in a certain format. The problem with online libraries like that Amazon have, or I'm particularly aware of because I have an Amazon subscription, don't have a Netflix subscription, but I've heard of similar problems there. So those catalogues can change. Yeah. Their rights deals yeah. can change with what films they have available. True. Or they might focus more on what's new and upcoming and aren't too interested in the older catalogues of films, which you find aren't available if you want something a bit different. Um, it's very uh, kind of temporary, um, mm. this culture um, that's happening. And uh, people think, oh, I can watch anything you like. And actually, if you look more into the catalogues of these companies, they actually have less available than you might first think that in terms is, of choice. Yeah, that is actually really true because, I mean, I have some CDs yeah. from 2004, yeah. which I can still play. Yeah. And they work perfectly yeah. fine. There are some yeah. CDs which I backed up and they are actually the cheap 
um, writable CDs which you just get to back up some of your data and they're still working although yeah. I do have it on my yeah. uh, hard disk external yeah. but still the CDs are fine although you have mentioned like it, this is a very good property of uh, we just having a physical copy of the thing and also the choice of actually just picking it up yeah. and putting it on the same issue with everything is in a, on a cloud or where where yeah. this this problem has been discussed um, even on a wider scale. So this is actually really fascinating. This has also been uh, represented in the media industry, which is one of the largest consumption of CDs yeah. and DVDs. Yeah, well, where I've also seen a really interesting illustration of this, this trend, even though we're uh, in some, some <coughs> people think we're moving more to this digital culture, but there's still this huge... Uh, diverse range of interests and tastes in a variety of different media formats where I've seen a really interesting illustration of this is research that's been done into media piracy. Mm. Again, one of the authors of one of the chapters in it's the cult media book uh, that was published, uh, Virginia Crisp, um, writes about certain pirates of Asian films and um, what uh, they, uh, they like to... Um, brag about not what f just films they have access to digitally um, because it's not legitimately released in their country through a distributor but they also like to brag when it's available when a film is legitimately released on blu-ray and dvd they like to brag about their collections they um uh, about what they have on their dvd shelf is yeah. very important to them it's not just what they have in the digital realm equal importance to them is what they have on the dvd shelf and some some of these collectors take what is now known as shelfies you know pictures mm -hmm. of their collections that they're very proud of so there's this huge interest in physical media and ownership and and having something long term as well as you know the the digital access to things which is uh, also um convenient and um, uh, also, uh, you know, aimed for so much and, and appreciated so much in, in the current society we live in because of the technology. Yeah, but, and also you can have a connection to whatever you own a bit more better because, yeah. I mean, we still are not yet transferred our consciousness no. into VR, so we... No, we, we haven't. It, it, everyone talks about the digital revolution, but if you think about it, we're not quite there yet, no. really. No, no, we are not. Yeah, and then... We definitely have to think about what you have mentioned, the problem of uh, losing what we have into yeah. the digital realm. And yeah. it could happen. No, it could happen. No, um, there uh, there are more uh, groups and institutions um, aware of this issue and doing a lot to archive what they can yeah. and preserve what we have, like uh, institutions like the BFI, yes. uh, the, the East Anglian Film Archive that I know of um, back in... Uh, Norwich and lots of other archives set up around the world trying to digitize and preserve what physical materials that we have because we could lose yeah. um, you know, digital storage of, of things in the future. Yeah. Um, one and, one yeah. solar flare exactly a grid could. goes off yeah and, and, and a tsunami. yeah if you want to be really pessimistic well, about it yeah it could happen yeah <laughs> i mean it has happened so i mean yeah, th th yeah. this is not something which no. is out of the blue it actually no. be more in a way, we're a very practical approach towards yeah. something which has happened already yeah. in hundred years. Uh, it's, it's, already, it's already scary, unfortunately, when you look at um, 
film historians, early film historians, and some of the warnings uh, do come already from looking at early film history. We've already lost a lot. There's wow. some statistics that suggest early films from like the 1910s or 20s, if not earlier, about 90% of those films are lost because they just weren't stored correctly wow. on old celluloid film. And some filmmakers today working, especially people like Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan, they say even though celluloid film is highly combustible if you don't store it right, it's still the best way of storing that medium because it will still work through the projector no matter mm -hmm. how long you keep it on a shelf somewhere. Um, some people say it's even better at preserving film at the moment than DVDs, but DVDs are still the go-to for a lot of people because they're just so cheaply available. Yeah. Well, Hitler died in one of the films in Glorious Bastards. In Glorious <laughs> Bastards, yeah. Yeah, in a, in a projected <laughs> theatre where they blew up all the celluloid, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah, despite that odd scene that it ends on, Tarantino is still a big fan of celluloid yes, film. Yes, yeah. that is, that's, that, I can see that. I yeah. can see that happening. <laughs> Brilliant. Is there anything else would you like to? Um, no, I think we've covered a lot. Thank you for your question. Some mm -hmm. of it is, as uh, as I say, my my research is kind of a tiny area within this uh, these topics that we've talked about. But I hope you to be touching a lot of those areas that we definitely started on. Hopefully, in the Zatoichi book, which Brilliant. is uh, my latest work in progress to be started. Um, I'd love to follow up on that on future when I'm Brilliant. further down the line with that Brilliant. book. Brilliant. I mean, I love. Uh, the story which you are working on already I mean there is a pull to it and there's a lot of um, discourse yeah. around it which we, would, I would love to it talk It sounds about. like a really niche category I've been telling some of my colleagues about it but I've been telling them one of the most recent hooks is to show the impact that Zatoichi is having is a couple of years ago there was the Star Wars film that was released called Rogue One and Donnie Yen famous martial arts actor was playing a blind warrior he did admit at the London Comic Con, which just happens across the river from here at the Excel Centre, he did admit uh, in May 2017 that he was heavily inspired by Zatoichi. That, that is character. fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I Star Wars fans might kill me. I won't call myself a Star Wars fan, but that's, that's fine. Rogue, You're welcome. Yeah. Rogue One is one of my. Like, did I you really, really enjoy it? Liked it. Yeah, that I was... I really enjoyed it too. I mean, I'm a big fan of the franchise. Mm -hmm. um, I'm aware of a lot of the uh, criticism that the Last Jedi got, as well as praise. But I really liked it. But Rogue One, I thought was uh, was brilliant film. I really enjoyed it too. Realistic, yeah. and exactly. I mean, I felt, I wish I would have met you before, but then I wouldn't <laughs> be fascinated now. But that character, it is. I well, that that is fascinating. I think it would be amazing to see more of that research. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. No